You know, it always amazes me every week, and it really is every week, it seems, that we, when we come here to worship, the way that God the Holy Spirit takes the call to worship, the benediction, the songs that we sing, the prayers that are prayed, and the sermon itself, and just weaves them together as God works in Will's heart and Jared's heart, my heart, as we kind of move together throughout the week, independently coming together on Sunday morning, and the Holy Spirit revealing his sovereignty and his power over all of this. And so I just want to say, uh, I wonder if, as you've come here this morning, if you've come here with a kind of anticipation that is born out of a faith in the Holy Spirit, a faith in the truth that God the Holy Spirit does move and work when we come together as a body of believers. We know that, that the com- just the coming together of God's people in Jesus' name in and of itself is a, is a great context, a powerful context of the Holy Spirit's work. And we know that every time we open up God's word and we read it and we study it, we preach it, we pray it, we sing it, that that also is blessed by that same Holy Spirit who authored it. And so I just wonder this morning, are you anticipating what God is going to do in your heart? Are you anticipating how the Holy Spirit is going to providentially, sovereignly today work in each of us. I hope that that's the case. I hope that you're not just here kind of waiting until we're done with it. Is, it is, I guess, uh, about 11.30 right now. Our stomachs say it's 11.30. Our minds say it's 11.30. So maybe uh, lunchtime is, is, is kind of there. But my hope is that you will replace those thoughts and any other concerns that you may have with a deep confidence in the powerful working of the Holy Spirit as we come together today. So today we come to one of the mountain peak passages of Titus, and for that matter, I would say one of the mountain peak passages of all of the New Testament, and and then we could say of all of the Bible. It's a beautiful, beautiful set of verses in chapter two. I'm speaking of chapter two, verses 11 to 14, which we have over there on our wall. And I just want to encourage you, these verses on the wall are in some way a kind of decoration, if we wanna say it that way. You know what I mean? They do, they do, provide some decor here in our worship space, but that's not what it's about. That's not why they're there. They're not mere decorations or adornments for our worship space. They are meant to be kind of focal points for your eyes and your mind as you come in to worship the Lord. So my my prayer, my hope, I know that we come on Sunday mornings and there's a lot of good conversation that we're, that, that's being had and a lot of you know, catching up with people, praying for people, and all of this kind of mutual edification that we very much hope is going on as we have these conversations here. But let me just encourage all of us as we come into the worship area, as we sort of prepare our hearts, that we will look at these posters, that we will meditate on these words and prepare our hearts for the worship that we're going to then be going into. So let's read this passage You can look at it over there on the wall, or you can look at it in your copy of God's Word, or your iPad, iPhone, whatever uh, it is. So Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting 
for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together. Ask that his spirit will indeed work in each of us, not just some of us, in each of us. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and kindness towards us in your Son. We thank you for your faithfulness to your Son. And throughout his earthly life, as he, throughout his incarnate life, as he came here and took on the form of man, as he became man for us and lived among his disciples, that you were faithful to him. We see the words of Christ on the cross as he declares in quoting from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that as we read through that psalm, Father, we see the the trust that the psalmist and therefore the Messiah has had in you. We thank you for Christ's confidence in you, his Father as he moved through his earthly life and as he died for our sins on the cross. We thank you that he stood in our place, that he was in our stead, that he had faith in our place. And God, we confess this morning our unbelief in your grace. We confess that we frequently do not trust you. We frequently do not marvel at your goodness in Christ. We frequently grow very much excited about far inferior things, things that, are, that can't even be compared to your grace in Christ. And these things delight us. These things excite us. They make us feel good about life, whether it's relationships or vacations or our, our hobbies or our jobs or our money or whatever, Lord. These things become for us great enjoyments, and we become enthusiastic about them. But, Lord, all the while we are so cold and dry with respect to your grace. God, would you forgive us for that? Would you, would you ignite within us a fresh awe this morning, a fresh awe of you and what you've done for us in Jesus? And would, would the, the relationship of grace and works and grace and holiness and all these things just be clear as we look at this particular passage? Father, would you apply it to our hearts individually? I pray for every person here today that each person will be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray as we think about this gathering for uh, those perhaps among us who have never trusted your son Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who are still in sin and upon whom the judgment of God still rests. I pray for those people today, God. Would you, would you be merciful to them in this gathering? Would they be hearers of the word? Would they hear it and through that hearing would they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? I pray, Father, that you will do this great work among us today. And for those of us who are believers, would you encourage us in the gospel of grace? Would you, would you ignite our, our passion to live holy lives for you? God, would godliness and self-control and uprightness be just the melody of our lives, God, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So these words, which we have over there on that sign, that poster, provide a theological foundation for the kind of behavior that is described in the 10 preceding verses. So in chapter two, verses one to 10, we see do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Why? Why? 
Why should we avoid certain things and why should we gravitate towards other things? Why are there things we do and things that we are not to do? And the answer comes at the very beginning of verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's why. Because of God's grace, that's the reason that we live gospel lives, the kind of lives that we saw described in verses one to 10. This is the reason why we are to live morally beautiful lives. Think about that. Morally beautiful lives. This is not moralism. The word morality, the word morals, these are not bad words. These are good words. We are to live morally beautiful lives because in doing so, We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior as we've looked at. This morally beautiful way of life not only adorns that doctrine of God our Savior, this gospel of grace, but it also accords with it. It flows out of it, flowing out of it and pointing back to it always. This morally beautiful kind of life accentuates the gospel. So we spent the last two weeks looking at that gospel life as described in verses one to 10. And now today we turn to the gospel foundation. That is what we have in these verses. The gospel foundation itself and the one word that stands at the head of all of this, all that we find in, not those verses, but these verses, all that we find in these verses is this one word, grace. 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 D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book Spiritual Depression says this about grace. It is grace at the beginning. Grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us, there is the thing that helped us at the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. Everything about our lives as Christians is about grace. So there are five things this morning. As we look at this passage, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, there are five things that we need to see about grace. Five things from this passage. And we're going to start doing this today. And you know, I really did make an effort to get all of this into one sermon. But as I got to thinking about it a little bit, if there ever was a passage that really needed to be treated in many, many different sermons, I think it would be this one. So dense, so powerful, and so filled with practical insights for life. So we'll start today, and we'll finish up at a later time. So these are the five things that we see in this passage about grace. We see the essence of grace. We see the effect of grace, the expectation of grace, the event of grace, and the end of grace. All of these things are present. By the end of grace... I simply mean the objective, the goal, the aim of grace, where everything in grace is headed towards as far as this life is concerned. So let's begin with the essence of grace. Look at verse 11 again. The essence of grace. For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. 
Whatever we may say about grace, probably the most essential characteristics are that it is divine and personal. We would miss these two things about grace if we just sped to what we would see as kind of the good stuff in the passage, all of this meaty material. But there in just these very first words, these opening words, we find that grace is both divine and it is personal. So what do I mean by these two? First, it is divine. I say that it is divine because it is of or from God. It is God's grace. For the grace of God has appeared. What in the world is this grace of God? To give you kind of a, a quick definition, a way of understanding kind of the core meaning of grace, it is this. The unmerited or unearned favor of God in which he gives us a free gift. That is kind of a quick definition of what is meant here by grace. We learn in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Not a single person in the world is without sin. But God has come in that context and given us a free gift of justification through putting forth his own son. As we go on to read in verses 24 and 25 of Romans 3. That God gave the free gift of his son, the free gift of being made right with God through Jesus' being put forward as a propitiation for our sins. What this means is that God sent his son Jesus a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. And all of us are sinners. And Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty, which is death. We read in Genesis 1 through 3, at the very opening of the Bible, we read that God told Adam, when you do this, if you do this, you will surely die. And in fact, he did die. He went on to die a physical death, but he died immediately a spiritual death in which he was separated from God. This is the penalty for sin. Christ came into the world. God sent his own son into the world to take on human flesh so that he could die a sinner's death on behalf of sinners and therefore remove the guilt of sin, take it entirely away. All of this is a gift, all of it. Ephesians 2.8, as we think about our own experiential understanding of grace, as we experience it personally, we have these words in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So everything that we have as Christians, our salvation our standing in Jesus Christ as, as his righteousness has been, to, has been given to us. Jesus was a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. His righteousness given to us. He took our sin upon himself. All of this is a free gift of God, not from us, but from him. And so the application that Paul draws out of that at the end of Ephesians 2 is that there is absolutely no room for this thing called boasting. Now this is important for us. Because as you go through the, the verses that precede our passage for today, as you look at chapter two, verses one to 10, and it talks to older men, older women, young men, young women, bond servants, and we could, we could think, think about that as employees. And you read that passage, there is a real sense in which you could, and I would even say should, be able to read that passage and to see those things coming to fruition in your life. And so let's say that you're a young woman 
And you read that passage about loving, older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands well, to love their children, to be keepers of their home, to to manage their home, to be pure and self-controlled. That's the content that we find for younger women in that passage. And so you read that, you, you encounter that, and you begin to think, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm living that way, or, or maybe any other group within that passage, you begin to think, that is exactly what I'm doing. My life corresponds with what we find being, being commanded of us, or what we find instructed to us in the scriptures. And so you have this kind of realization that on one point, or even on many points, you are walking in this particular way. And here's what happens. This is the danger with us as we live our Christian lives. We read the duties, we read the responsibilities, we see the the commands of scripture, and we begin to see those things come to fruition in our lives, and this is exactly what happens. We begin to pat ourselves on the back. We begin to have some self-congratulation. We begin to have some self-righteousness because we feel like we're actually doing what it is we need to be doing. Grace leaves no room for any of that. That's the, that, the, the centrality of grace is that grace comes along and says the foundation and everything built on top of the foundation is a gift. It is something that you received from God, not something that you earned. It's not something that you just concocted within yourself. It's not due to your own willpower or your own strength or your own earnest energy. It is due to God's good gift. And that's why even at the end of chapter two of Ephesians, we find that the works we do themselves were prepared for us. Listen to that. They were pre- it's like God saw down into the future. He saw us and he just prepared a set of what would be called your works. And then you live them out by grace. As the Holy Spirit takes all those preordained works, brings them to fruition, flushing them out in the practicalities of our daily, lo- of our daily lives. So the foundation all the way to the roof is of grace. So no one should read the Bible and walk away feeling great about themselves. In this sense, feeling great about their own effort, their own energy, their own success as a Christian. We should read the Bible and always be brought back to what we have received by grace. So that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Anything that anyone has ever praised you for. You know, you've been going through the Christian life and people see in you certain attributes, certain character traits, and they say to you, good job, you're doing well in this. People who are discipling you one-on-one. And they're encouraging you. Those of you who are here are teenagers. Your parents are encouraging you. They're telling you this is good. You're doing great in school. You're doing this well. You're doing that well. You've been listening. You're obeying. All of these different things. And the answer that we should always have is what do I have that I did not receive? This is the great protection against our pride. When the Puritan Thomas Hooker was dying... Mourners gathered around his bedside, and one that stood weeping said to him, Brother, you are going to receive the reward of all your labors. Just a good Christian brother trying to encourage a dying man. Hooker looked at him and replied, Brother, I am going to receive mercy. Mercy. That's what we will receive 
when we die. Not a single person on their deathbed will be sitting or should be sitting mulling over all the things. And see that, by the way, that is one indicator that we are either not right with God or that we are very dry in our spiritual lives. If we're always mulling over all the good things we're doing, that is a very good indicator. If, if that's where we rest, if that's what we lay down upon, if that's what we sit upon when we're in those moments of crisis and we're like, yeah, but I, uh, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, but I, I've been dot, dot, dot. Whatever it might be, that is a clear indicator that there is either a lack of understanding of grace that saves, in other words, there, possibly you're not a Christian, or that you have grown dry in your worship of God for his grace. We should look back and say, God is so merciful. God is so good. Anything we see in our hearts, anything we see that might be considered uh, an expression of Christ's righteousness lived out would be for us an opportunity to say, God is so good, God is so gracious, God has been so kind, he hasn't given me what I deserved. He's taken out a heart of stone and he's replaced it with a heart of flesh upon which he has written his law. He has made me a child. He has loved me, just as the, the, the prodigal son story of the running back to his, going back to his father. He, he's not the one running. The father is the one running out to the son, wrapping his arms around him and showering him lavishly with his love. That is precisely what our father has done for us. And that's the reason for anything that we find in us. What do you have that you did not receive? So I want you to consider this. You don't have to earn it. You say, yeah, of course, I know that. Of course, I don't have to earn anything. But do you live that way? Do you live as though you don't have to earn it? I just wanna say this, quit trying to earn God's favor. How many of us are doing that? How many of us are doing that this very morning? You're, you're doing a lot I mean, maybe you're doing a lot in terms of service. Maybe you're doing a lot in terms of devotions. Maybe you're doing a lot in terms of witnessing. Whatever kind of category, you know, we, we tend to put the Christian life in these categories, you know, these, these list of things that demonstrate that you're living the Christian life well. So you've got these, you know, three, four, five, or whatever things that, that you do, and this is what good Christians do. My question to you is, are you trying to earn God's favor by doing those things? All of us who are believers would immediately say no in, in theory, but the question is, in practice, are you trying to earn God's favor? And here's why that's foolish. Because grace is God's unearned favor by its very nature. So the very thing that drives any good work you would ever do is an unearned favor. It's a, it's a divine free gift. So trying to earn God's favor is to fly in the face of the fact that God has already done all of this for us in Jesus. And so it's divine. Grace is divine. The second essential characteristic that we need to see about grace is that it's personal. It is personal, meaning that it has to do with a person. It is found in a person. When Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, notice those first few words, for the grace of God has appeared. When he says this, he is pointing to the one who has appeared. 
Think about it. He's not just saying that at some point there was sort of a, a, a downpour of, of rain and that was kind of grace. Or all of a sudden there's been some kind of new uh, teaching that's just sort of erupted on the scene and now grace has appeared. Or now something's happened inside of us and that itself is the appearing of grace. No. He is talking about the one who has appeared. Christ himself. Jesus has Appeared. He is pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation. The grace of God has appeared. When the fullness of time had come, Christ came. We learn about this at the opening of Hebrews. As the writer of Hebrews talks about, in former times, God spoke through prophets, but now God has spoken to us in son. And that's probably the best way to translate that. He has spoken to us in son. So that now, Christ has made something utterly new possible. He has begun the process of making all things new. And this becomes clear in our passage as we look at verses 13 to 14. Just look there briefly. We'll cover those at a later time. But just look at where we see these verses headed. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we see clearly there that all this grace business, all of this talk of salvation is about Jesus. It is, it is all about this particular person. And this tells us that grace is not abstract. It is personal. Grace is, hear this, grace is union with Christ. Grace is fellowship with Christ. It is following Christ. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a grace-filled life? It's a rhetorical question. You just kind of think on it. Do you have a grace-filled life? And the way that you would answer that question, the way that you would answer the question, is grace a big part of my life? Is grace something that saturates my mind? Am I a grace-oriented believer, which all of us should be properly understood, grace-oriented believers? The answer to that question would depend on whether or not you have a Jesus-filled life. A grace-filled life is a Jesus-filled life. This tells us that as we talk about the Christian life and its foundation, our attention must be on the person of Jesus. Of Jesus. Now, let me say this. This is, I think, very practical for us because it is easy to begin focusing on principles and ideas instead of a person, instead of the person of Jesus. We all fall into this. You kinda, have you ever found in your Christian life you're going along and you, maybe you are doing, you, you're engaged in spiritual disciplines, you're talking about the Lord, you're thinking about the Lord, you're reading the Lord's word, but you find yourself thinking about God in these very general terms. You find yourself thinking about God even in kind of abstract terms. Or you're thinking about doctrinal principles or ideas. And all of these things are just swirling around in your mind. And that's what you're focusing on. And then when, it, when you come to think about it, you realize, you know, I haven't really thought much about, said much about the Lord Jesus. We lose him. We lose him in the shuffle, even of our religiosity, even in the shuffle of our Christian disciplines. We lose the person of Jesus. Everything is about him. Everything is upon him. And so this grace that is from God and that is housed in Jesus 
has an incredible effect on us. And that's where we're moving now to the second point we have. So we have the essence of grace, the effect of grace. Is this not on? Okay, sorry. Sorry for interrupting myself. <laughs> so, so we have the essence of grace, and now we move to the effect of grace. Look at verses 11 and 12 together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There are two effects of grace, two effects of grace that we see here in this passage. It saves us, it brings salvation, and it trains us, it instructs us, it educates us. That's what we see here in these verses. And I want you to see how these two ideas are linked. The fact that grace saves us and it trains us. How do those two things work together? But let's treat each of them one at a time. So first, grace saves us. Grace saves us. It brings salvation for all people. We shouldn't understand this to be universalism. We should simply understand this to be that it brings salvation to all kinds of people, all classes of people, and especially in the context where you've just treated all these various groups. In the last 10 verses, he's gone through, he's got older women, older men, younger women, younger men, bond servants. It even goes to slaves. This is a grace that has appeared for all people everywhere. It is also a grace that has appeared not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, which was radical in the ancient world. And so much of what you read Paul saying can be understood in the fact that the salvation going out to the Gentiles was something that a lot of Jews regarded as strange or new. So God's grace, the appearing of Christ, has been for all people. So it saves us. Anytime we hear that someone has been saved or rescued or delivered, the first question that we want to ask is, from what? From what? I think we, we lose that. We have so many of these Christian words that we throw around, and we forget what they mean. We forget kind of, so we, yeah, God saved me. And it's just an idea. We don't really get and understand kind of what, what we're actually saying. We would never use that word with so little substance in any other situation or in any other context. But we know that when we see saved or rescued or delivered, there is always a movement away from something. We are rescued from something. So when we are told that grace saves us, we understand that it has saved us from a very awful something. And most fundamentally, we learn in the scriptures that this salvation is from sin and its effects. So sin is in us, it is deeply in our hearts, it is in everything, it's in our mind, it's in our will, it's in our affections, what we love, what we cling to, all of this depraved, sinful. And what the Holy Spirit does is he comes and, and creates in us a new heart whereby we begin to love righteousness. We no longer love sin, we no longer cling to sin. We begin to love righteousness. Also, the, the penalty of sin upon us is removed as Jesus takes it, so that God sees us as perfectly righteous at any point in our Christian life. And imagine that, is that something that you really think about? That when you are a, first, a new believer, a very young Christian, a baby in Christ, that you are no more righteous after years and years and years of growing and doing and so forth, you are no more righteous then, at the end, 
than you were at the beginning. And here's what this means for those of you today who are struggling. Struggling maybe with lots of temptation. Struggling because you keep giving in to temptation. And there are some things in your life that you are earnestly praying to God for repentance over and you're struggling. Here's what you need to know as an empowerment to your soul. And it's this. You are no less righteous before this God today in your struggle than you will be when you get over your struggle. You are righteous before God now in the present because the penalty of sin has been removed. But because the power of sin has been removed, that recognition should drive you towards holiness. That recognition should cause you and help you to get out from under this sin so that you move beyond this struggle. It is not in the way of the Lord to remain in these struggles. We must overcome. We must fight over these sins. I wanna share a couple passages with you that speak to the fact that we are saved from sin, that this is what Jesus came to do. 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When we read that, we, we learn that Christ came into the world to save us from sin, that which defines us. 1 John 3.8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and death, the devil uses against human beings to hold us down in this bondage. And Jesus came to strip the devil of these powers, sin and death, so that we would no longer sin, but we would live to God. And we are told in Romans 6 that when this salvation comes, we become dead to Sin, And here is where we find the link between salvation and the second effect of God's grace, the training part. So maybe you're kind of comfortable with this first word, saves us. For the, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Maybe you quite like that idea, but then you get to this idea of it training us, and it just sounds a little bit strange. And how do we relate these two, that God saves us, or grace saves us, God saves us through grace, and then he trains us through this very same grace? How are these things working together? Well, going back to Romans 6, Paul asks a simple question, and I'm sure you've encountered this in your reading of the scriptures. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the big question that Paul wants to ask after he's gone through all of this theology about the grace of God, not on account of works, but on account of grace, and that we're saved by faith and not by what we do. All of this theology about what has been accomplished for us through Jesus' obedience and his righteousness, that he's the second Adam, not the Adam, as we read in Romans 5, who brought disobedience and sin and condemnation into the world, but the second Adam who liberates us from all of that as he gets to the end of that wonderful exposition of God's grace, he wants to ask this question at the beginning of chapter six, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because one of the questions is, well if it's all grace, then can I do whatever I wanna do? I mean, does it really matter how I live? Can I just continue with these sins? Because I'm saved by grace anyway, right? So it doesn't really matter how I live my life. And that is Paul's response. How can we who died to sin still live in it. And this question is, in essence, what grace is always saying to us. This is how it trains us. It says this, how can you live a life that is devoted to what you've been saved from? 
don't you know who you are? That's what grace is always saying to us. That's the relationship between salvation and the training that works itself out in the holiness of our lives. Grace is saying, how in the world can you go back to what you were saved from? Don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize what God has done for you in Christ? So let me just say this, an unholy life denies grace because it fails to take seriously what we were graciously saved from. Uh, recently, I was, uh, for some reason, I was thinking about this story that happened when I was a kid, and I don't know if some of you who are a little older probably have a greater recognition of it, but there was this little girl, 18-month-old girl, in 1987 named Jessica McClure. Maybe you've, you remember that, and she fell into this little well, this tiny little well, and she was there for over 50 hours. And I can remember, even as a kid, that being, uh, and I was probably only about four, and that was, in the, that was kind of in the air, that was on the news. People, the whole nation was just kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. And all of these first responders and all of these, uh, all, all of, all of these firefighters and other, uh, other experts who were trying to dig, and they ended up digging a, a, a vertical tunnel and then cutting through rocks so that they could be able to get up to her, to rescue her after 50, over 50 hours, 18 months old. We are a lot like that when Jesus saves us. We are in a totally unsavable place. When Jesus comes in, he saves us. And here's the situation for 